says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And Father, we ask as we continue now in our worship that by your spirit, you would just help us have a heart that is receptive and tender towards you and the good seed of your word being deposited in it. I pray for each and every one of us this morning. Lord, take away the distractions in our hearts and minds. We pray that you'd even just give to us a willingness to genuinely want to hear what you as the living God would want to say to us personally in our own soul this morning. Lord, we know that we need to hear from you. And so we ask you to bless your word and speak to us now by your spirit's ministry that we might hear your voice speaking what we need to hear. And we pray and ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, God has an amazing way, it seems, to bring something good out of something that perhaps may be bad. That is, maybe to use something like painful mistreatment that could happen in our life. Maybe some evil activity or experience. Maybe some hardship that we may find ourselves going through in our life. And to actually bring forth from those kind of things something good. To bring forth something beneficial and to use maybe what was intended in our life to hinder us or maybe to harm us or even destroy something that was good and actually take that and like a master chemist kind of mix it and turn it around ultimately to bring about something that's good and beneficial and actually orchestrates God's plan for our life in the long term. And that's really what we see happening in the case in our text here. Out of the evil resistance and out of a tragedy, God overrules in these affairs and ultimately brings about, as we see here, a spiritual awakening and actually accomplishes what the will of God was out of something that started out as a very bad and tragic thing. The background, of course, which plays into chapter 8, remember we saw Stephen, this 
faithful servant of Christ who was seeking to be a good representative of Jesus. He was boldly proclaiming the truths about Christ and his salvation. And as the result of the resistance against that, they raised up false witnesses to lie about Stephen and to say that he was blaspheming God. And they began to accuse him of blasphemy against God and the temple and the law of God. This ultimately resulted in Stephen then being brought before the religious council, the Sanhedrin, where he then had to give a defense. And Stephen gave this masterful biblical defense of the history of the nation of Israel and how they at times had proved repeatedly to resist and to kind of reject the work of God's spirit and the deliverers that God would send to them. And Stephen said, there's no difference now in this present time. You are just doing the same thing again with God's ultimate deliverer, his savior, his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to you. And now again, you're resisting him in this very time and season. However, remember, as they heard these truths, though they were convicted by the truth that God was speaking to them, they became greatly offended. And rather than the crowd in Acts chapter 2, who it says they were cut to the heart in conviction, and they said, what should we do? These believers, these particular people, rather than those people, as they heard these truths and were convicted of sin and guilt, it says they were cut to the heart and they became angered and greatly offended personally, so much so that the text tells us that they actually took deep offense in their anger and stubborn pride. They stopped their ears and like a mad raging mob they ran towards Stephen remember they dragged him out to the edge of the city and it says they literally stoned him to death and they murdered this righteous man because he was speaking the truth to their hearts that they didn't want to hear and it says in Acts chapter 7 verse 60 look at that last verse again it says then Stephen having been stoned by this mob knelt down cried out with a loud voice saying, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he then fell asleep, fell unconscious, and he died. So notice, persecution now against Christians, followers of Christ, and against the church has now risen to a whole new level. This is now the first martyr, the first person dying for faith in Jesus Christ. And here now is the first murderer of those among the Christian church. And it seems, as we go in the text moving forward, that killing this first Christian kind of sparked a bloodthirst for destroying and harming more people among the Christian faith. It's like it was the first spark in now a forest fire of Christian persecution. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 8 as it continues. It says, Now Saul was there consenting to Stephen's death. Here we begin to see the beginning stages of the incredible hatred this man Saul of Tarsus had towards Christianity and those who were followers of Christ. At this point, Saul of Tarsus was a zealous young man, we know from Acts chapter 7, who was diligently studying under the tutelage of a rabbi named Gamaliel. And Saul was very zealous in his learning of the ways of the law and Jewish customs and the traditions. He was a very zealous man, lived an extremely outwardly righteous lifestyle, following the practices and the rituals and the adherences of Judaism. 
And no doubt Saul was very likely there in the synagogue when Stephen first started talking about Christ. He heard Stephen give this defense and this great explanation about the history of Israel and how Jesus was now the next person that they were rejecting in light of that. And the guilt, as Stephen ultimately said, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? And just like all the other religious leaders, Saul took great offense. And we saw in chapter 7 last time, as they started stoning Stephen to death, executing him, it says they laid down their robes at the feet of this young man, Saul of Tarsus, who was there taking the robes of the executioners. And Acts 8.1 says that Saul was there consenting to Stephen's death. Now, what's interesting, that word consent there, in the Greek language, it doesn't speak of a passive consent, but more of an active approval. The term that's used there is literally a reference to giving enthusiastic support. The idea is Saul's not just passively kind of watching and staying disconnected. He actually there is agreeing in a supportive way. The idea, the implication is he supportively, enthusiastically enjoying watching them execute this man because he feels to the same degree as the others do that are executing him. The text goes on to say in verse 1, it's at that time then that a great persecution arose against the church generally, which was there at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. So during this time historically, there's now an outbreak of anti-Christian attitude towards the church that was established there in Jerusalem, forcing some real changes to come about. It says in verse one that it was a great persecution that arose against the church. Now, when the Bible speaks of persecution, it's referring to the persistent hunt and pursuit, if you would, of those who dislike those who are followers of Christ. The word persecution by definition means speaks of harassing and mistreating and attacking in order to injure, grieve, or afflict. And this is the idea here. Because of their belief in Christ, they're now coming against them to cause them to suffer in this way. And notice, this wasn't just a persecution. The Holy Spirit uses an adjective. It was a great, megos in the Greek. The idea is large, massive. The idea is in its sphere, And in its intensity, this was now a great persecution in its scope. And this painful mistreatment and persecution against Christians happens in many different forms. It began then and it carries now to our present age. Sometimes persecution comes in the form of just verbal abuse and mockery or verbal threats towards somebody who's a follower of Christ. Sometimes persecution involves robbing and destroying a follower of Christ's property, taking their possessions, maybe robbing and stealing from them, uh, opportunity to work in a community, in some way imprisoning them or taking away their freedoms. And sometimes persecution even results, as we see here with Stephen, in physical abuse and even putting people to death. Jesus said in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world that is out of that system of the world, therefore now the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And every Christian says, that's my favorite Bible promise, right? Man, that's a good Bible promise. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, here's a Bible promise. They're going to persecute you too. Look, that's important to understand to some degree as a follower of Christ because we need to recognize with eyes wide open that being persecuted to some degree and at different times and seasons in our life is genuinely a part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, this will happen. You are now living a life in contradiction to the system of this world that has a very anti-Christian attitude towards the things of Christianity and who Christ is. And, and again, because of that, there is going to be this opposition and this resistance that's going to come against us to different varying degrees in all of our lives. Jesus indicated that we will experience this as we walk with him, as we serve him. That as you tell people, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, that you should not be surprised if all of a sudden you begin to face resistance or become the odd person out in your family. We like the old you. This new Jesus excitement thing, I don't know, it's just... Can we get the old you back? Could you start cussing and drinking and doing bad things again? I mean, this whole nice and you go to church twice a week and, and even sometimes you go to like one of these helper things, the outreach stuff you do and like, what what is this? And now you're reading your Bible all the time and you're talking about spiritual things. And again, this becomes a thing where all of a sudden now the mockery begins and the insult and so forth. And sometimes it even begins to translate, as I said, into further mistreatment. If you're a young person, it may result in not being the cool person in school or losing friends and having people begin to reject you. And look, let me say something to you. Don't you become a coward because just you want to keep somebody as your friend, that friend ain't going to get you into heaven. Jesus is. And if Jesus suffered mistreatment and torture and mockery, to some degree, it becomes a badge of honor for us on occasion. And so here, this great persecution happens. And it can happen in many different forms, maybe in some way recently, whether in your job or family or whatever capacity, you've been experiencing some of this resistance and evil mistreatment harassment and mockery and maybe even something to a much more severe degree can happen to harm your life because you're a follower of Christ. Well, look at the result of what happened in verse 1 when the persecution in that day came against the church in Jerusalem. It says that they were then, verse 1, all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. So it caused many of the believers who were a part of the Jerusalem church which was at this point really the only church that existed, it caused many of the believers in the church in Jerusalem to be scattered, it says, into the areas of Judea and Samaria. Now, here's it's interesting. That term scattered that Luke uses, the writer of the book of Acts, in the, the Greek terminology, it's one of two terms that could be translated scattered. It's not the term scattered that would speak of kind of scattering something with the intention of just making it disappear or dispersing it all over. 
Instead, it's the Greek term scattered that speaks of how a farmer would go out and intentionally scatter seed in his field in a way whereby he wants to bring about a harvest. It speaks of an intentional scattering of seed to bring a harvest as a result. The idea is, is as the believers were persecuted, mistreated, harassed, abused, whatever was taking place to the different degrees, as they're being persecuted and mistreated, they're actually divinely by God being scattered around into different fields and really pressured and pushed to move into different locations due to hard circumstances. And God was using this to move believers into new and different locations that he wanted them to be in, that they might be more fruitful for the work of God. In a sense, God is overruling and using a hard situation to bring a greater harvest spiritually. That's what's taking place here. He was using what was meant for evil to bring forth something good. It's almost as if the devil, in his angry attempt to stomp out the burning fire of the church, as the devil tries to stomp out the fire of God, sparks just fly elsewhere. And now all of a sudden, God's got multiple fires burning for Jesus in different communities, in different locations, in different territories. Notice the persecution caused them to be scattered, it says, from Jerusalem into further out regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, can I remind you quickly, it's not too long ago, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what did Jesus give them a commission to do? Jesus said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And what we have happening here is this. These believers thus far in the church of Jerusalem, they were doing a great job impacting their own city first. They were lighting up Jerusalem with the gospel. Remember, they were being accused. You're turning the whole city upside down with this gospel message. And they were doing a very good job in their own city first. And to some degree, biblically, really, that should be where we start first. Being effective in the city, in the place where we are. But yet it seems what happened is as they're impacting their own city, doing great in Jerusalem, and they're loving this church family thing and being together and they're having great fellowship it seems they started to settle in and then overlooked and neglect the desire of the lord to begin to then expand his work to start to impact judea which is a little bit further out and then samaria which is even further and so it seems that they kind of gradually began to disregard this and since they weren't taking the initiative to obey and follow jesus's commission Jesus allows them to have a little incentive. It came in the form of mistreatment and persecution and some difficulties. The Lord permitted them to experience some personal difficulties to kind of help stir the nest a little bit and, and, and to get them to recognize really ultimately what they were supposed to be. It's almost as if the Lord permits some hard and difficult things to get them headed in the right direction to get them moving in the way God wanted them to move. It says the apostles remained there, but it says, look, many unplanned missionaries were being sent out whether they wanted to go or not. <laughs> they were just being sent. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching 
the word. So since they weren't willing to do what the Lord desired them to do and instructed them to, he used some fiery experiences to stir the nest and to get them moving in the direction God wanted them to go to. And look, sometimes the Lord will do the same in our lives. Sometimes, perhaps, if there's something the Lord wants us to do, or maybe the Lord's instructed us to do something, or maybe he wants us to move forward in some direction or whatever it may be, perhaps sometimes the Lord tells us to do something, and what happens? We kind of get into our comfort zones in life, right? Nobody likes to move out of their comfort zone. And the Lord, maybe he wants to stretch us, or maybe he wants to take us to a new uh, level in our walk with him or our service of him. And, and maybe it's out of fear or laziness or just selfishness. We don't want to do the thing that we know the Lord told us to do. Or maybe it's just we're afraid of change or we're stubborn or, you know, it's challenging to obey. And, and maybe it's obeying the Lord in some form of Christian service. Maybe it's just doing something that Jesus told you to do, like, say sorry to somebody i don't know maybe it's whatever and and a lot of times the lord may give us something to do and for whatever various reasons we hedge and we're not doing what he told us to do and the lord's faithful sometimes to say if you need a little incentive i can stir the nest and so sometimes the lord may allow and permit something hard or difficult or maybe it's some bad thing that happens in our life and that hardship or difficulty or the pressure or the loss of a job or some crisis or hardship that we go through that becomes the thing that kind of stirs the nest and the lord then uses that to get us going and moving perhaps in a direction that we need to go in look sometimes hardship and difficult times can at times be god's process to move us on to God's next season or to bring us to the better thing that God wants for us. Sometimes God uses that hardship to be a launching pad to move us forward in a good way. Well, verse two says, at this point when Stephen was murdered, devout men then came and carried Stephen to his burial and they made great lamentation over him. So we see this very dignified burial process to honor this faithful servant of the Lord. He had been put to death for his faith in Christ and now he's being respected in his life and service. It says devout or dedicated godly men. They graciously carry him to the place of his burial and it says, verse two, there's great mourning over the loss of his life. Other translations render that that there was loud weeping or, or they were mourning deeply. And I want you to take note of that. Don't overlook it because even though Stephen was a believer, and even though they know he went directly into the presence of Jesus when he died, yet still notice there's great grief. There's deep mourning and lamentation over the death of this loved one. We see this pattern of grieving and mourning even among God's people in Scripture. And I say that for this reason, it is proper, it is natural, it is biblical, and it is necessary to grieve at the loss of a loved one, even if they know Jesus, and even if you know Jesus. I don't buy into this idea. Well, they're just in the presence of the Lord. Look, stop being fake. You need to grieve. It's a proper thing to grieve and to mourn and to go through a process when we lose someone. Certainly, they've gained the privilege of entering into heaven, but we're still here on earth, and we've suffered a great loss. And it's a painful loss. 
And it's a difficult experience. The Bible simply says the difference, 1 Thessalonians 4, is that we don't grieve as Christians as those who have no hope. But it does say we grieve. We just don't grieve as, same way, those who are unsaved and have no hope. The difference is, if I know that loved one is a believer and they're with Christ, and I know that I'm a Christian and, and I'm going to one day be with Christ, I can grieve, but with an underlying sense of hope to help me in my grief, that it's not goodbye, it's just see you soon. And that hope undergirds the grief in the midst of it that we know there's a reunion. And let me just say this too, death is another one of those kind of bad you might say experiences, hard experiences that I see that God can actually use to bring something good out of. Because for the Christian, that bad process of going through the doorway of death, whether it's sickness or whatever it is, it's a hard thing. But it's out of that bad process of death that that becomes the doorway to experience being in the presence of Christ. Because Paul says to be with Christ is far better. Look, I'm not excited about the process of dying but it's going to be good on the other side of that. And in the same way, none of us enjoy the process of the death of a loved one, but who would not be the first to, to admit that a lot of times it's the death of a loved one that kind of becomes a time where God recalibrates our heart in that moment. And all of a sudden we start thinking about what matters again. And our world slows down. It's the pain of death and that loss of a loved one that a lot of times refocuses us spiritually and something good comes out of even the loss of the loved one in our life. Well, verse three goes on to say, as for Saul, at this time, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So at this point, as the faithful believers are, are burying Stephen, we get a summary statement of this vicious, now persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Notice it says there, he made havoc of the church. The language there speaks of making havoc. It speaks of a wild, ferocious beast mangling its prey. That's the term the Bible uses there to describe the attitude and the activities of Saul like a ferocious beast just mangling up its prey. That's the language God wants us to see of this man's intensity. It says there, verse 3, he was entering every house and dragging people off the prison. I mean, what kind of brazen audacity do you have to have to break into someone's house and then dragging a human being? I mean, how, when was the last time you dragged a human being, except maybe when your toddler was throwing a temper tantrum out of Walmart, but you're dragging a human being and throwing them in prison and not just men, but women. I mean, this describes just a vicious, barbaric man in this intensity of anger. Later, Paul plagued by, I think, the guilt of his own persecution after his conversion to Christ. Paul says this, Acts 22, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering prisoners, both men and women, as also the high priest bears witness in the council and elders from whom I received letters from the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there in Jerusalem to be punished. Acts 26, Paul again says, indeed, I thought myself that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. I shut them up in prison having received authority from the chief priests. 
And when they were put to death, he says, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and was exceedingly enraged against them. This was Paul's mannerism. This was Paul's actions and activity at this time. And let me just say, this man, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, we'll see it in the next chapter, Acts chapter 9, to think, here's Saul in his past life, it's this man doing those things who God intends to save and to forgive. And wait a minute, to then use as his greatest champion and servant to be the one to spread the gospel of Christ in the early church. And this was by God's design. Look, man, this reminds me when I look at what Saul was before he became Paul the Apostle. There is no limit to the extent of God's grace and how far God will go in his ability to change a life and that Jesus wants to change lives. And Saul of Tarsus reminds us here, despite anyone's past, the Lord can deliver somebody. And then he can do marvelous things through their life. Not only can he save you and forgive you and give you a brand new life, he can take your life and make it extremely useful for wonderful things and use you in powerful ways. In fact, it seems the darkness and great failures of Saul's past is what gave him such a motivation to serve Jesus with such fervency. So look, I don't care what your past has been. What's your present? It doesn't matter what your past has been. Let your past motivate you to presently serve Christ with gratitude and with enthusiasm to give back to Jesus all that he has done for you. Well, we pick up in verse 4 with these believers from verse 1 who had been scattered to Judea and Samaria. It says they went everywhere, verse 4, preaching the word. So as they're pushed out of Jerusalem, they're forced to find shelter and refuge in various cities and communities in Judea and Samaria. And they become informal missionaries being sent out to preach the gospel and share the word of God in the different locations they end up being at. The word of God was spreading. The work of the Lord was expanding. And it was all happening not because the apostle Peter or the Apostle John, or spiritual leaders are being sent out, but because they were as just simple, common, faithful believers who loved Jesus, were moving to new locations and living in different cities, they were just preaching and sharing about Jesus and the Word of God wherever they went. And wherever the Lord sent them, like Christians being sown out like seed, God was expanding His work. And I'll tell you, I believe in some ways that that is God's famous, faithful, and favorite plan of evangelism. I truly believe that with all my heart. You know, it has often been said, and I think there's probably factual truth to it, that way more genuine conversions to Christ happen by one believer sharing with someone else outside of the church than people getting converted in worship and church services. As the Lord scatters us like seed and sends us out and he puts us in different locations and different communities and different jobs, a lot of that is by God's design where he's telling people, look, you have my truth, you have my word, now share what I've done in your life. Tell people what your experience has been in this wonderful way. Wherever the Lord has sent you in your city, in your neighborhood, in your job, just Preach the word there. 
Proclaim to people. Tell them the truth that you know and what the Lord's done in your life and your everyday activities. And that often is how great works of God take place and people come to Christ. In fact, the Bible gives us one such example here as how this was happening with Philip. Look at verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And multitudes with one accord, they heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed and there was great joy there in that city. So the Bible now focuses on one such life that went to another location being scattered, the life of Philip. And here in the Bible, we now see the Lord expanding Philip's sphere of ministry. Remember, we first met Philip in Acts chapter 6, where he was one of the seven men who was appointed to oversee the food distribution program. And they had to be men who were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and had a good reputation. And he faithfully, faithfully performed his role of waiting on tables as a faithful minister. Now later, what do we see happening here? We see the Lord increasing his sphere of ministry. Now we see Philip functioning as a effective evangelist, operating in the miraculous power of God, being used to do miracles, and a great new work of the gospel starts, as we're going to see here in the city of Samaria, a spiritual awakening happens because one guy who used to faithfully wait on tables kept being faithful and kept being faithful, and Jesus said, if you're that faithful with waiting on tables... I need to get you serving the true food, the word of God, and getting you speaking to people the truths of the gospel. And Philip now goes and this great awakening happens. And this guy goes from being a table waiter for Jesus to being like the ancient version of Billy Graham and leading a massive spiritual awakening in the city of Samaria here. But I tell you, Jesus often does this. He often will use faithfulness and little things to expand your role of opportunity or ministry or service. And we'll give you greater opportunities. Well, during a time of this persecution, Philip is pressured. Like others, he's scattered. And we notice a few things here as Philip goes out. First of all, notice the unlikely mission field he pursued. That's seen in verse 5. The unlikely mission field, it says, he went down to the city of Samaria. Here's why that's an unlikely mission field. Because we know at this time from John 4 and other historical accounts that Jews and Samaritans did not interact with one another. There was incredible animosity between these two people groups and it went both ways. They both disliked each other. There was intense segregation and kind of racial ethnic tension among the Jews and the Samaritans. It went both ways and they did not intermix socially. But yet perhaps Philip remembering what his own Lord did in John chapter 4, where Jesus, remember, went and he crossed the racial boundaries and he cut across the, the social hindrances and boundaries that existed in his day and Jesus went to that woman at the well there in Samaria, that Samaritan woman, and he showed the love of God and he spoke to her about the things of eternal life and Jesus crossed cultural and racial boundaries. And perhaps Philip now being led by the spirit of the Lord, being sensitive to Jesus' heart within him, he prompts Jesus saying, now can I use your body, Philip? I want to go reach the whole city. And Philip goes there and he, and he just disregards all of the tense 
you know, opposition and animosity and the segregation and all that. And he's willing to go and minister to a population group that most other people would not go interact with. And I'll tell you something, sometimes the Lord will send his servants to places where other people would not normally go. Sometimes the Lord will prompt a person to reach a particular people group, whether it's you know, a certain social class or maybe it's you know, a particular group of people that, that others kind of you know, look down upon because, well, let me just, you know, those, that kind of people group, I just, and, and others would look down on them and, oh, I don't want anything to do with them. And, and yet Jesus at times will touch the heart of a person and say, right, that's the people group that nobody else will go to. But you can. And maybe you'd connect with them. And maybe you have a love for them that nobody, or maybe you can relate to them because maybe you were a part of that population group at one time. And the Lord saved you out of that. And now he's given you a heart for that. And sometimes it could be a city, a community, whatever it may be. And the Lord at times will send one of his servants to such a group that others won't go to. Guess why? Because that's the very people group that are ripe for a spiritual awakening in their hearts. And that's what we see here happen with Philip. Philip goes to Samaria and it says as he goes there, verse 5, simply he preached Christ to them. Notice the simplicity of his message. He preached Christ to them. You can't get any more direct and to the point in regards to ministry, but that's what we're supposed to proclaim anyway. We're supposed to present Jesus to people. Jesus doesn't want us to go out and preach Calvary Chapel to people. Oh, just Calvary Chapel. You should just... Jesus doesn't want us to preach Calvary Chapel to people. Jesus wants us to preach Christ to people. Because look, no church, no people group, no ministry, no died for anybody's sins on the cross. Jesus doesn't even want us... Listen, he doesn't think he wants us to go out and preach Christianity to people. Oh, you should be a part of Christianity. I mean, we just... Jesus wants us to tell people about him. The Holy Spirit wants to have us go out and tell people, listen, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did for us, who he is. He's the son of God. He loves you. He died for our sins on the cross so that we don't have to be punished. And he rose from the dead. He's not like all these other dead religious leaders who said good things, but they're dead in graves. Jesus is alive and today he can help you. He can forgive you. He wants to come into your life and to preach Christ to people and let them know this is the one who loves you and wants to forgive you and save you and give you access to heaven. But he also will judge you if you reject him. And he is coming again to this earth. And are you ready to meet him? Do you know him? See, this is the thing, really, that is a simple message where the power of God changes souls. Because when Philip went there and preached Christ, it says there in verses 6 and 7, there was an incredible, powerful experience. Multitudes were paying attention to what he was saying because they were seeing and hearing the miracles. In other words, the Lord was causing miracles to happen to confirm the truth of the word of God. Lives are being changed. Look at verse 7. It says, Unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice coming out of those possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were being healed. So demons were being cast out of people by the power of the Lord. And Jesus here was moving in such a way, people who were under control of demonic influences were being set free. They were being delivered from demonic possession in their lives. 
It says those who were sick and crippled were being miraculously healed by the power of the Lord. Those once paralyzed being released and restored from that condition by Christ's power to confirm the truth of the word of God. And look, the gospel message and the power of the Lord has that effect. It powerfully transforms lives in various different ways, but the power of the Lord sets people free from demonic and dark influences in their lives. It liberates people from what is crippling them and holding them back from God's plan, and it brings incredible joy as people's lives are changed. Great joy, it says, was in that city. Again, what happens? God takes what's intended by the devil for evil, right? The persecution. He takes what the devil intends for evil, and look what God's doing now. He's turning it into something really good. In fact, I don't know if you took notice of the progression in our text. There was great persecution. There was great lamentation and mourning. Now there's great joy in verse 8. But that's often how the Lord works. Some hard, hurtful thing happens, some work of the devil to destroy and devastate, and then God intervenes. And God gets involved in the midst of something horrible, and God says, oh, yeah, it was, that was a great mess, but wait till you see the glorious thing I bring on the other side of that. And, and God is a way of just turning things around. God can turn a curse, the Bible says, into a blessing. So when it's hard, what do you do? You keep walking forward. You keep putting one foot in front of the other and following Jesus, and you give him time. And he can take what's very bitter and somehow make something incredibly sweet that you rejoice in on the other side of that in your life. Well, verse 9 tells us of this other unique man. We'll see more of him next week. Simon, it says... A certain man, Simon, who was previously practicing sorcery in the city, astonished the people of Samaria, claiming he was someone great, to whom all people gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So at this point, we're introduced to this man, Simon, who was propagating great evil in the city of Samaria prior to the time that Philip came there to preach Christ. It says there in verse 9, Simon, Simon practiced sorcery in the city. The language speaks of magical arts, spells, and incantations. So this man was someone who certainly was in touch with yielding to dark and demonic forces to some level, as well as like any magician, he was good at deceiving people in ways through illusion to appear powerful and mysteriously as if somehow he had some divine supernatural power. And it says, verse 9 as well, that he was claiming that he was someone great. That is, he wanted people to admire him. He enjoyed having control and sway over people. His powers of sorcery brought great impact. Two times it says there in verse 9 and in verse 11, he astonished the people. He brought amazement. Verse 11 says they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorcery for a long time. That is, he wowed people in such a way. Verse 10 tells us they gave him heed, even claiming, look at verse 10, this man is the great power of God. That shows you how mesmerized they were by this man, Simon the sorcerer. They viewed him in some ways as God working among them, and Simon gladly welcomed and enjoyed this sway he had over the people. 
kind of like being God in their midst and people adhered to whatever he said and he could control them. And prior to Philip coming to this city, people lived in great spiritual deception under the rulership of this man, Simon the Sorcerer. Now, please take note here, not all supernatural activity automatically stems from the one true and living God. This man was doing supernatural signs and wonders and sorcery, but let us remember, Satan himself is a supernatural spiritual being. And he will gladly use the supernatural realm and signs and wonders as well to deceive people. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, referring to the time of the coming Antichrist, it says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception. Look, please be careful and use discernment. Not all signs and wonders and supernatural things, whether real or just a good illusion, are from God. We need to use discernment. What does that supernatural activity and wonder point a person to on the other side? That is the key in testing the Spirit. Well, thankfully, the power of God's Spirit and the truth of God's Word is much stronger than satanic lies and deceptions because when Philip comes ministering in the power of the Spirit preaching Christ, many turn from following Simon to following Jesus. Look at verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip... As he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So as they heard about the Lord Jesus, as Philip preached salvation through Christ, told them about the lordship of Jesus and the coming kingdom of God and heaven and all of its realities. It says here, despite all that deception, when they heard the truth of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, it says there, verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached these things. What things? The things of salvation. That word believe there is the same word that Jesus used in John 3.16 when he said, For God so loved the world that whoever that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is, they were believing unto salvation. It was believing response to the preaching of God's word in Jesus Christ that was setting people free. It was delivering them. It was liberating them from lies and deception and causing them to submit to Jesus. And look, that is what Jesus wants, to liberate people from the powers that are controlling them, sin and Satan and darkness, whether they even realize it or not, and to deliver them from that and bring them into the rulership of Jesus. Because that's what people need. And the way that comes is by telling them the truth of God's word. That is where the power for that comes from. Notice, as these men and women were being converted, it says men and women were being baptized. Again, that's the outward indication of what happened in the heart. Jesus gave us water baptism as a way to outwardly demonstrate the salvation that's happened in our heart. See, when somebody genuinely responds to Jesus, asks Jesus to save them, and submits to Jesus' lordship, and they have a conversion experience, that happens in their soul. No, no one can see that, but God... And they know what happened inside of them. So Jesus gave a way outwardly to demonstrate that. And it's through baptism. In a sense, that was the ancient form of a altar call where people came forward and they demonstrated, I'm a follower of Christ. I want it to be evident 
that I've experienced his salvation within and you're glad to let that be known to others around you. Now with that connection and context of many souls now as we see here in Samaria beginning to experience conversion and salvation to Christ, it's with that context verse 13 concludes saying, then Simon, that sorcerer dude, he also believed, imagine that. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Notice the Bible emphasizes Simon the sorcerer, it says, also believed. Same term believed that's used up in verse 12 to refer to the conversion of the others who are accepting Christ, believing like the other men and women in the city. And now instead of people being amazed at Simon and the sorcery, it says, verse 13, that Simon now is amazed seeing the miracles and the signs that were done by who? By the Lord. Because now his mind is blown thinking, wow, I've never seen this kind of power before. This is real. I've been faking people for a long time, but this is real power. This is genuine. Now, let me say in connection to next week, because of the events later in the chapter, some question if Simon was truly converted here. And there becomes debate as if he was maybe just giving an outward profession because of the way he behaves in the latter part of the chapter. And you're free to come to your own conclusion and only God knows his heart. Personally, I tend to fall on the side of believing that he did genuinely experience conversion here. I don't want to debate the issue, but what I do think in light of the text and what's going on is God is perhaps showing as the capstone to these events how the power of Christ can reach anyone, anyone, even someone like Simon in the darkest place of a life involved in the most evil, deceptive, wicked things, they can always still be humbled by a breakthrough of the power of the love of the Lord Jesus. And no matter what condition someone is in, God can still break through. And I just wonder sometimes, maybe sometimes God needs to allow a very stubborn, hard-hearted person maybe even to go to a really dark place and a really bad place to genuinely see the goodness of the Lord and the love of God and the power of the Lord to come in and rescue them out of that. God knows sometimes he has to let things get worse in order to come in and make things get a whole lot better. Let's stand. Let's pray together.